When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody. Uh, this is Garki, and today I have with me Daisy Rockwell. Uh, she's an American, Hindi, and Urdu language translator and artist. She has translated a number of canons of Hindi and Urdu literature, including Upendranath Ashk's Falling Walls, Bhishma Sehi, and Khajida Mastur. And her 2021 translation of Gitanjali Shri's Tomb of Sand was the first South Asian novel to win the International Booker Prize. And she's, she joins us here to talk about her award-winning translation. Hi, Daisy. How are you today? Hi. Doing great. How are you? Good. Thank you. Uh, I know we have been going uh, back and forth uh, for an appointment for this uh, podcast. And it has been some, some time since the Booker ceremony. How was it? Um, it was very nerve-wracking. Um, because they really like to build up the suspense at that event um, and they don't announce the winner until pretty late at night like after dinner and many presentations and so on so we were kind of um, you know our nerves were pretty shot by the time it was announced <laughs> and uh, now you have a PhD from Chicago and you're also an artist and mm-hmm. I looked at of your brilliant paintings on your website. Uh, do you see your works in these two um, different uh, fields as some kind of coherent oeuvre or this is something you're leaving for the future to decide? Um, I think for a long time they haven't really intersected until recently. If you've seen some of my recent paintings there, um, They've been focused on Urdu calligraphy and I've been um, working, collaborating with my friend Aftab Ahmed, who is a um, senior lecturer in Urdu at Columbia University. So he's been um, help translating American works of American poetry into Urdu. And, um, and then I do kind of a painting and uh, um, um, and, and also with including the Urdu calligraphy of the poem. So that this is where the intersection has started to occur. But before then, I would say it was all just kind of separate stuff I did. And you paint under a rather interesting alias, Lapata. <laughs> yes. Choose this alias. Well, I was um, in academia for about 15 years. Um, and... Um, I 
it just became something that did not agree with me at all. Um, and so I left kind of suddenly, like I just decided I couldn't do it anymore. Um, and after, so after a few months or maybe even a year after that, a friend of mine who runs a blog called Chapati Mystery asked me if I would contribute to it. Um, and I said, sure, but I don't really want it to be under my name or it, I don't want like to advertise who I am. And he um, said, well, you can just choose an alias and um, then no one will know. So I chose Lapata, which means like disappeared um, or like, you know, address unknown or something like that in Hindi and Urdu uh, because after I left academia, people kept saying to me, well, what happened to you? You just disappeared. So that's how I chose it. So it's kind of like my takhalus in the Udu tradition where you have, because um, now everybody knows that that's who I am. So it's not a secret, but it's still my, I actually sign my paintings with that in Udu. Yeah. Uh, but I, I don't like generally I don't blog anymore. Nobody does, I guess. So, <laughs> uh, but I um, I don't use it otherwise. But it's just kind of out there as my tachalus. Yeah, and um, am I allowed to ask why you uh, chose to study South Asian literature? Was it a choice based on academic reasons, or was it some personal motivation for the same? Um, well, I always loved studying languages in high school and college um and i had uh i sort of went through a bit of a crisis in college where i was actually a classics major so i was studying latin and greek and i just started to feel fed up with it because i had been studying latin since i was 12 and so i just felt like i'd had enough um and I'd studied French and German as well. And so I decided I would try something completely different that I had no connection with. And um, and Hindi kind of fit into my schedule. <laughs> and, and so I just signed up very randomly for a Hindi course. And that drew me eventually into South Asian literature. And, and why do you... Serendipitous. Yeah. And why did you um, start to translate books? Was that also an accidental thing or was it something that you thought was the need of the art? Um, well, I had a couple of professors in college and graduate school who encouraged me to translate because, you know, the, we had done some exercises in literary translation, just trying it out. Um, and so I was encouraged to do more. Um, and I, I had the good fortune of taking a, a seminar on translation with um, A.K. Ramanujan, who was a great translator, poet, linguist, folklorist. Um, and he, that was really uh, pivotal for me because he um, was really quite brilliant at, um, in the way that he approached translation, a very creative, how he brought alive um, the poetry of medieval Kannada um, language, medieval poetry of saints, 
um, into a very modern idiom, um, a beautiful and readable modern idiom that just uh, was very attractive to current readership. And um, so I was very inspired by his work. And um, so ever since then, I've been engaged at some level or another with translation, but I wasn't actually doing any when I was in academia, because it, if you know the how academia is quite rigid in the rules of what counts, you know, towards advancement to the next stage in translation does not count. So I wasn't doing as much of it at that time. It was kind of off to the side, but a few years after I left, then I started to do it more in, in earnest again. And, and how has this experience of translating as opposed to academia? If you had one word to describe it. Oh, I don't think I have one word. But, um, well, I think, um, I think that translation is uh, a really deep form of um, scholarly inquiry. And when you engage with a text on that level, you're just going in far deeper than you are if you are simply reading it. Um, so, and I think that translations, completed translations are a form of commentary, of literary commentary. So to me, it's actually a very deeply scholarly activity. Um, and, you know, I'd venture to say in, in some ways, more so than your traditional close reading of the text. Yeah. And um, I, I, there's no way to uh, avoid this uh, because South Asian writers have been, um, to everyone's um, sadness, been very susceptible to violence. And mm -hmm. I'm thinking here of Salman Rushdie, who not many hours ago had been attacked, was this political aspect of South Asian literature very evident to you when you started or was it something that was was part of the the the, the life of a translator? Um, well I mean when I first started studying Hindi and then and then again when I first started to read Indian literature I or learn about Indian culture I knew absolutely nothing whatsoever but um I very quickly learned as I started reading, being able to read Hindi literature in the original, how important um, politics was to South Asian literature at large and, um, and kind of started to have an awareness of how much it, um, pol politicalness is suppressed in especially in um, like Anglo-American literature. It's not that there is nothing political, but it's still considered, you know, um, like it shouldn't be a focus of a, like that that takes away from the literariness if you're too political, I think is continues to be a somewhat dominant aesthetic. So, so it was a surprise to me. And um, I also became really fascinated. I studied the origins of um, the Progressive Writers Association in India and um, just came to understand how um, deeply that affected, I think, all literary production in the 20th century in, <clears throat> in India and in Pakistan. 
Bangladesh, all over South Asia. And and how has it been uh, as uh, a literary person since 2014? Because uh, I was reading uh, the news and there was a, in, in Agra police is now going to read Gitanjali Shri's book and going to decide if it's something objectionable or not. <laughs> how has this experience been? I mean, um, I'm not surprised because um, these things happen so frequently in India, not just with books, but with movies and music and so on. It's, I mean, it's been going on since before, even before the rise of the Hindu right, um, because there are these provisions in the law for hurt sentiments, hurt religious sentiments, which, um, make it very easy to bring forth um, kind of ludicrous cases some of the time. And uh, it's problematic because, you know, I mean, I think a better way to frame this type of offense would be hate speech or something like that. There are laws like that in many countries. But in the Indian constitution, it's this hurt sentiments thing, which... um, means you don't really have to define very um, elaborately what the problem is. You can just say you felt really hurt. You know, basically it becomes this affective reaction. So I'm not surprised because um, Tim of Sand is a huge book full of just a wide variety of topics that surely somebody could find something to be offended by if they were really trying to look. And you know, not to get metaphysical, but like if you get a huge prize like the Booker, you're bound to attract the Nuzzard, right? Mm-hmm. And so, um, you know, we've done all we could to ward it off, but <laughs> I'm still not surprised that, um, you know, I, I, I read it as jealousy, um, you know, a lot of the time when something becomes very successful and people start to attack it. So, yeah, I guess I just hope that it continues to not um, gain momentum because it really hasn't been catching on that much, this particular complaint. Um, it, this, it seems to be pretty localized and, and hasn't blown up the internet or anything like that. And why do you say jealousy? Oh, because if you, you know, it's just like you win something or... Um, you know, it's it's so it became so huge this win in India um, because it was the first time, and so we got a huge amount of attention for the book, just massive amounts of attention that books don't usually get. Um, you know, I would even venture to say, sort of on par with Satanic Verses or something like that, or that I mean, obviously Rushdie also had a, a, a Booker win. Um, And I think um, it's, you know, for many people it's a source of joy, but for some people it kind of gives rise to to jealousy because we were getting so much attention. And of course there's other dynamics at work where um, two women getting lots of attention and Gitanjali is also, whilst not like, a leftist firebrand, she went to JNU and she has leftist politics and so on. So that's 
bound to attract anger and jealousy from um, the right wing type of um, views, I think. Yeah, and Gitanji, she is a very um, special author because, um, and in the, in the, the, for example, in this book, she is questioning all notions of the man's world. She's questioning patriarchy, modernity, uh, English language education, and and so on and so forth, and uh, and it situates progressiveness in a very intimate private world of an aged woman, mm-hmm. and aged cis woman and also a, a, a trans woman and mm-hmm. is something that even contests the the usual liberal discourse we see in India and in, you know in, in print and in digital world and mm-hmm. um, so how uh, what was the first thing uh, as someone who is very conscious of the political aspects of the literature what was the first thing you, that came to your mind when you read this book? I know it's hard to say that there was one thing because there's just so much, so, so much going on in it. Um, and as you know, as you read it, it's it, your views continually change and your reactions change, you know, because there's so, so many types of moods um, and so many different topics covered. Um and of course, I had to translate it. So <laughs> it's really <laughs> incredibly difficult to translate. It was incredibly difficult to translate. So to be honest, I think I was thinking, you know, my reaction at that point was fear. <laughs> because I was like, how am I going to do this? There's so much wordplay and so very idiosyncratic use of language and so on like that. So that was actually what I was thinking about, not about the political things as much even though I was perfectly aware of them I you know I had a job to do and it was not going to be easy yeah yeah definitely it was not it was so emotionally charging to even read the book I was wondering how the process of translation would have been yeah well there's all different styles it's written in too so it's very it was very very tricky um and we just had to go over certain passages again and again and again and again because nobody could help me but her because it was so individual the way that she expressed herself. So, um, yeah, it's just ex- extremely challenging. And I, so for a long time, when you're in that process, you don't really think about the content of the book that much or what it feels like until you come out the other side when you're like in the third and fourth and fifth and sixth, seventh draft, you know, maybe around the seventh, I started to be able to experience the book again as a reader and think about what she was saying. Um, And at that point, I started to think somebody's going to be offended. (laughs) (laughs) That's true. But more than if offended, I mean, I was surprised by how um, the the Hindi news media would definitely like to see more works in, in Hindi. The government has been promoting Hindi as mm. a language. And surprisingly, I I did not read uh, anyone from the ruling government who, who who congratulated on this book on this great achievement? Do you do you feel that it was underappreciated despite their politics? 
Oh, I mean, I think it 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 very neatly exposed their hypocrisy because they have been really banging on about Hindi in recent, I guess, years. But like really lately, it had become a big issue about how Hindi was, you know, the Indian language and everybody needed to learn it and so on. And so here was a great example of how awesome Hindi is and the whole world cheering on Hindi literature. Um, and they said there was really zero reaction. Um, and, you know, I'm sure that like they were like they were worried about, you know, what it contained and should they associate themselves with it. And then, of course, they'd have to read it. And I don't know if like anybody is trying to read it to figure out what take to have, like the way that the, um, you know, the Agra police officers have to, <laughs> to read the book. But it's not an easy book to understand. And I think it will be very hard for them to figure out, you know, I mean, that their type of politics is so black and white. And this book is all about gray, you know, so it'll be very hard to grasp and very hard to decide if something is offensive or inoffensive or, I mean, you'd have to really have an acute literary understanding to grasp, I think, the politics of the book. Yeah. Um, and as someone who translates into English, you occupy uh, a very particular place in South Asia because uh, you're not only translating for uh, for people outside South Asia, but also uh, readers in South Asia who do, are not necessarily as comfortable in Hindi to, to read a novel. How, mm -hmm. how do you negotiate this complex linguistic space, so to say? Well, that's been an evolving um, challenge for me because I think long ago when I first started translating, I didn't understand that I didn't realized that that might happen. I sort of imagined that people in India who could read Hindi would be reading it. And the people I was translating for would be people outside of India who didn't know anything about Indian literature. So I started with that, uh, what turned out to be a complete misconception. Also, I didn't understand that um, Anglo-American publishers had absolutely no interest in publishing these translations too. So until Term of Sand, which is I think my ninth published translation, I had never published a translation outside of India, like zero. And that, that was not for lack of trying. And I also have many friends and colleagues who have also tried other translators. And there's just been no interest at all in our work. Um, so, so my work was published just inside of India and it could be exported and so on. But I started to realize that the people that were reading it were Indians um, and Pakistanis and so on. Um, and, you know, if, for example, they might not know Hindi really at all, like they could be Southern or something like that, or um, or they could be Pakistani and had and know Urdu and read Urdu fluently, but can't read Hindi. But they would want to read 
these translations. Um, so the cultural and linguistic knowledge of my primary audience over time, I've come to realize is extremely high, um, but I still want other people to be able to read it even if they know nothing. So it's kind of a, a high wire act to um, keep everyone under the tent. I think I just mi mixed my circus metaphors there, but <laughs> I'm trying to keep everyone under the tent at once. Um, and uh, Indian and Pakistani readers are not shy about their critiques if, if they didn't think I did that successfully. So um, in reviews and in comments and on social media, people share things that they um, weren't happy with. And one of the big problems is that um, readers in South Asia of these translations want to feel the Hindi or the Urdu coming through like they don't want it to be flattened out, which I was never trying to flatten it out. But I mean, they... Um, they want to feel it. So I like I have to let it come through the text in certain ways. And so I think in Tomb of Sandus, like the, you know, in a sense, a culmination of me trying to perfect this technique of keeping the original language alive within the English text. And that's partly because it's such a multilingual, like the original Hindi is very multilingual as well and includes lots of English. So I'm trying to keep that um, polyphony in the English text. And uh, it's been gratifying because a lot of readers have said that they didn't feel at all, um, like they, they could feel the Hindi and they, they didn't feel alienated um, as they read the book and um and that's actually a heavy burden too because it's not my fault and it's not their fault that they feel alienated from their mother tongues this is like an artifact of empire and colonialism and so on like that and um but i still have to be sensitive to it and a sensitive to my position as you know an american and a white american um translating a South Asian text into this hegemonic language. So trying to do all these things at once is a very difficult task. Yeah. And, and why are um, Anglophone and American publishers not interested in text coming from other Indian languages? I, I don't really like have any idea, but I've had these really funny rejections where they say things like, well, we really, you know, the translation is good and the book is interesting, but we decided it was too rooted in its own time and place. Like, how can you say that? <laughs> um, I think one theory is that the, um, there's a lot of Indian literature written in English for an international audience and so that makes publishers feel like well that box is checked you know we've we've got our Indian literature and it's written in such a way to make um 
you know, foreign, foreign people, non-Indian people, white people or whatever, feel they don't feel uncomfortable because things are explained, you know, and that's a big complaint of um, in India about this kind of writing is that everything becomes a sociology lesson, you know, like things are explained in incredible detail and um, sort of um, catering to armchair enthusiasts and stuff like that. I mean, that's obviously not true of every single book, but the fact is that it's written for an international audience. Um, and so it's easier for them to imagine marketing it. And, you know, a lot of these things, this is capitalism. So everything comes down to marketing. Yeah. And if you uh, look from the point of view of academia, I mean, I know you're outside it, but you're also writing for academic journals, uh, for translations and so forth. And I, 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 even though the book is checked, I don't, I, I'm not convinced that this uh, complexity of of the multilingual space is is to um is uh is completely understood for example in germany we have we will have uh english language text coming from india being taught in english center for language studies center for anglophone literature but we'll have text written in Eng indian languages who will be taught in center for indian studies or, or, mm -hmm. or sanskrit or things like that even though um uh, in as an Indian, I would rather study them uh, together. Yes. Mm -hmm. And and how is this in U.S.? Well, I mean, I think in in Germany and um, Europe, like it's actually probably better. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, but in uh, in U.S., I mean, there are South Asian centers around the country um and in those you're more likely to get translated literature or literature written in the original language in but that's going to be in language classes you know like there's not going to be just a a course for people that are fluent in the language or something like that and then there are many professors of post-colonial literature throughout the united states who are teaching primarily real Indian literature written in English and um, sometimes they bring in translation. A few people do, but that's totally just an individual choice. So it's, it is partitioned, but there's also just a lot less of reading it in general. I think then there would be, I just might, my, my um, casual observation that in, Europe people read more translated literature and more world literature than they do in America. America is so insular and monolingual. Yeah. And what is one thing that you would like to see change in the way translations are studied or received? Um, well, I guess that depends on changing. Right. What like changing the way that universities teach it or changing the way yeah I mean I think that translation should be recognized as a both a creative and a scholarly undertaking um I think that um Anglo-American higher ed should be offering more 
um, courses that include translated literatures from around the world. I think there's not enough of that. Um, so those are the biggest things, I guess, that I would change. Yeah. And, and my last question is about your future projects. Is it too early to talk about what are you working on next? Well, I'm working on many things. <laughs> um, I guess I post Booker, I have been working on some um, short stories of Gitanjali's. Um, I'm almost done with a translation of a novel by Usha Priyambada. Mm-hmm. I have an Urdu novel in the works that I like to say is kind of like Middlemarch meets Magic Mountain in the Northwest Frontier Provinces of Pakistan. <laughs> it's an amazing novel about a very intellectual Pashtun girl growing up. Um, and she's like, you know, she's like reading German philosophy and things like that. She's, it's very interesting and very, very um, erudite. So, uh, and then I'm currently translating also this sort of randomly happened uh, um, a book-length prose poem by the Urdu poet Azra Abbas called Neen Ki Musafatin, which means like a voyages of sleep, um, which is really fascinating me. So I'm just doing tons of, <laughs> too many things at once, really. No, I, I wish you the best and I hope to keep reading your books. Thank you, Daisy. Yeah. Thank you. Bye-bye. Goodbye.